Beloved, we now come to this portion of our worship where God speaks to us in his word. I'd ask you to stand out of reverence for this reading of scripture, this reading of the very word of God. Our first scripture reading is going to be from Matthew chapter 24, uh, Matthew chapter 24, verses 36 through 44, familiar passage, Matthew 24, verse 36 to 44. This is the very word of God. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and one left. Therefore stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. As far as the word of God. Well now for our second reading, which will be our sermon text, flip to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Uh, we'll be reading from 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, uh, verses 1 through 12, uh, but our focus will be the latter portion of the chapter there, speaking of Christ's return. <clears throat> so 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. This, again, indeed, is the word of God. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians, in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions, and the afflictions that you are enduring. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are also suffering, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may, be, may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you, and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's for the word. You may be seated. We'll just go to the Lord in prayer and ask for his help. O oh Lord, we bless you. 
for your holiness and your might. We bless you for your grace in giving us your word to guide us and to teach us about you and your ways. So help us, O now, as we study your word, as we would hear what the Spirit says unto the churches. Form us by your word and glorify your name as your word goes forth. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, beloved, it's, it's a joy to be with you all again, a joy to come before you once again and bring the word of God. And this evening, we will be speaking about Christ's return, about the second coming of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Something we speak about in our churches and something we all know about and know to be true, but something perhaps we don't speak about enough, or we have something that could always be spoken of more. Previously, we, we've spoken of Christ's sorrow and his agony in the Garden of Gethsemane as he suffered. And then we looked forward and we spoke of his ascension as he ascended and was exalted in might and power and sat at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And today we'll speak of his return, of his second coming, where in a way he will bring that glory down upon us upon the world, and we'll see that that glory comes not only upon us as believers, but that glory will come upon even unbelievers, and that glory will be experienced in, in very different ways by the believers and by the unbelievers. And for those of us in Christ, this is a day that we need to be looking forward to more. We as, as kids would often look forward to our birthday or, or Christmas as a day of much anticipation. And depending on maybe what kind of student we are or we were, we, we would look upon maybe more the first day of school. Or maybe some of us looked with more ex excitement on the last day of school. Maybe we remember looking upon the day of our wedding, the day when we finally get to be married to the love of our life. Or maybe we remember the day of the birth of our first child. All days worthy of remembering, and before they happened, all days worthy of looking forward to. But what about the day that will be greater than any other day? What about the day that will change everything? I don't just speak figuratively there. What about the day that will actually change everything? It'll change the entire world. It'll change everyone who's in the world, and for that matter, everyone who's ever been in the world will be changed when this day arrives. This is the day that all of creation, that all of the world has pointed forward to from the very beginning. And as Christians, we ought to look forward to this day more than anything else, to the very day of Christ's return. For those in our text here in Thessalonica, this being Christ's coming, his second coming, this was their hope. This was their comfort. They were in the midst of trials. We see here that Paul, in verse 4, speaks of them in persecutions and in afflictions. And Paul, he's aiming to give them comfort, give them some hope. And so he points them to the second coming, to find that hope. Now that's especially of note to us because the persecutions and the afflictions that they're experiencing here in Thessalonica are not the, the, the kind of persecutions we, we often think of 
in the early church when we come to say, you know, the Emperor Nero and the murderings and those physical persecutions. See, at this time in Thessalonica, there were not yet, and those were not organized persecutions. Not, not what Paul is addressing and not what they're experiencing. What they're experiencing here is, is what some have called maybe more social harassment or social persecution. More so that their neighbors, that their co-workers, the rest of their community, even their families, were growing more and more displeased and even disgusted with them as Christians in what, the, what it is that they believed, what it is that they did, and what it is that they did not do. That, for example, they didn't take part in a lot of what was going on in the culture. They did not take part in the cultic a- aspect. They did not bow down before the emperor. They did not worship the idols that they used to worship. They did something very different. They worshipped a, a man who once lived and they thought was dead. And they continued to pray and to worship this man. And they held the beliefs and ideologies that didn't fit with the rest of society and what everyone else was doing and what everyone else thought they should be doing. And so the saints in Thessalonica were facing the consequences of something maybe called social persecution, being cut off from family, from their community, losing respect from the world around them, being afflicted by a society that did not like them anymore, or did not like what they believed or what they stood for, right? Not, a, not at all too different from where we seem to be nearing in the West, or perhaps where we already are. The point is, is that we may resonate very well with those in Thessalonica here. We're not to dwell on persecutions. We're not, we're not here tonight to dwell on the afflictions or to dwell on where the West is or where the nation is going. But if Paul looked at us, he would assuredly give us the same antidote. He would assuredly exhort us to look to the return of Christ. Christ is coming again. Let that be your hope and your comfort. So that is what we'll hope to do this evening. That in our individual lives, in our trials, in our hardships, and if we ever come to face persecutions in this, in this life, that we would learn to look at Christ and his coming that we would yearn and hope for Christ in his return. We ought to look forward to this day more. We ought to think on this day more. We ought to pray for this day more. And we ought to pray to be ready for this day more. Because it is coming. And so this evening, briefly, we'll look at Christ's return in, in two points. Brief points. But Christ revealed and Christ glorified. Christ revealed and Christ glorified. And with that, our first point, Christ revealed. Beloved, there will be a day, there is a day coming, when Christ will be revealed from heaven. That word revealed is important because it, it implies something that is hidden. There's something that we can't see, something that's not readily visible or apparent to us right now, but it will be made clear on some day, on a day, or on the day when Christ is revealed. Christ came to earth. He accomplished his work. He is now in heaven. He is in glory. And truth, true, truthfully so, he is beyond what we can see or experience with our own eye. He can only be seen by the eye of faith. But soon enough, that will not be the case any longer. So Paul provides this to the saints in Thessalonica as comfort. He essentially says... All of those who are persecuting you, all of those who are afflicting you, 
who are wondering why you can't just bow down to the emperor or why you can't just kiss the idols as you used to, who question why you believe in some man who's dead and gone and you can't see anymore. Paul says, soon enough, your comfort is that soon enough they will see this man. Soon enough, Christ will be revealed. And there will be a day when no one can say that Christians are fools for believing in a Christ they can't see. One day, no one will be able to tell Christians that they must prove God's existence, that they, might provide, that they must provide evidence for Christ. Because one day, Christ will be revealed and there will be no doubting him and who he is. In a sense, right now, Christ is hiding from the physical eye. As Scripture tells us, we, we see in a mirror dimly. He's not out of reach. He's not distant from his people. But he is not seen, in a sense, now. One could say that he's hiding his glory, that when he returned to his glory in the ascension, he is for a time hiding it, waiting for it to be revealed. But when Christ is revealed, when his glory is revealed, nothing will be hidden any longer. When Christ is revealed, he will not come with just part of his glory. He will come in the fullness of his glory. When he comes... He will not come humbled again. When he returns to this earth, he will not return as a babe. He will not return as a carpenter, as a servant. He will return as Lord and King of all. When he returns, as our text here tells us, he will return with his mighty angels. And he will return in flaming fire. The return will be an event seen and known by all. There will be no mistaking it. That's why Christ, he cautions his disciples in the Gospels that when people pop up and say, ah, I'm the Christ returned, or the Christ, he's returned over there. Right? We think of Matthew 24, when they say, look, in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he's in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. When Christ returns, everyone will know it. There will be no mistaking it. The magnitude of this event is something that is difficult for us to wrap our minds around. We can try and envision it in our minds, but it won't even come near to what it's going to be like. A day unlike any other. Imagine a day that will be the greatest terror to the wicked, and at the same time, at the very same time, will be the greatest joy to believers. Because when he comes, he comes in the fullness of his glory, and the fullness of that glory will have different effects on different people. For believers, we will see and behold the fullness of the glory of our Savior, of our King, as the church will be seeing the fullness of the glory of our husband. But for the unbelievers, they will see and behold the fullness of the glory of their judge of the one that they are at enmity against. They will see the fullness of the glory of the one that they have rebelled against for their entire life. And now, when he comes, it will have been too late. They will now know they have no excuse, and they have no way to escape what it is that is before them. The way this text reads and how it explains what it brings out, is it brings out this picture of a king coming with his army behind him. He comes 
with his mighty angels, not one or two, but a whole host, a whole army of them. He comes not to make peace. When he comes again, he comes not to negotiate, not to make a deal. He comes even to destroy. It says he comes in flaming fire. It says he comes to inflict vengeance, to bring, as our text even says, the suffering of eternal destruction. Beloved, when Christ returns, there will be no second chances. There will be no purgatory. There will, no be, there will not be even common grace any longer. When we read in the, in the Word of God, and as it tells us that God is kind enough to make the sun rise on the evil and the good, to make the rain fall on the just and the unjust, when Christ returns, that is no more. When Christ returns, the sun will indeed rise, but the sun that is rising is the Son of God and all of His glory. And the rain that is falling is no longer the rain of refreshment. It is the rain of His fire. It is the rain of His flaming fire, as our verse tells us. Beloved, these are difficult things to speak of. They are indeed true things, biblical things, and must be addressed. But they must be addressed with reverence and sobriety. This is not something to cheer on as we think of what this means as Christ comes in vengeance. This is not something we cheer on like we cheer on a football game. This is the eternal destruction of men and women, of unbelievers, those, as it says, who do not believe the gospel. Beloved, this will be men and women we know. But in this, as Christ brings vengeance, as he brings judgment, he does so perfectly. He does so as is right and good and true as God Almighty. My friends, Jesus is indeed the patient, compassionate Lamb of God. He is indeed gentle and lowly. As we spoke of last time, He is indeed desiring to bless us. Before He would do anything else, He would desire to bless His people. All that is true. He's at the same time the King of Kings. He is at the same time the Alpha and the Omega. He is at the same time the mighty Lord and Judge of all who will return to crush His enemies. This is the, the picture that Scripture paints. And it is our challenge as Christians to view Him in both lights. To view Him as He is. Not who we want Him to be, not who others tell us he might be or what, what sounds good for Jesus to be like, but to see him as he is and as he is revealed in Scripture. To see him as the whole Christ. To accept him, to love him, to know him as he is and all that entails. As gentle and lowly, as compassionate, and yet as mighty and fierce, all the same. This is our Christ. We don't get to tell him how he is. We don't get to make him up however we like him to be. This is our Christ who we worship. This is our Christ because he is God Almighty. I want us to take a minute just to try and get this to sink in, to imagine something we're all familiar with and can relate to. So imagine you're driving on the highway. Pick whatever highway you like. 
You're minding your own business, driving down the road, and out of nowhere this car comes and zips and cuts you off. Comes right in front of you. We've all experienced that. It gets really close, almost crashes into you. Right? Dangerous. And then he zooms off and starts weaving in and out of traffic, cutting everyone else off in front of you. And as the as interstate, as the highway starts to bend, you see right around the corner there, there's a cop sitting there waiting. And he sees the guy and flashes his lights on, takes off after him and pulls him over. Finally, as you get, you get up there, you drive past and you see the cop there writing, writing a ticket for the guy. And you feel a little a sense of justice, right? a sense of, of righteous vengeance. We've all felt that. And that's, that's all very, very true. Or even maybe a bit further, we've all seen or heard of cases in the news of some terrible crime, whatever it may be. It's all over the news, and we see there's this, there's this grand trial, and eventually all the evidence comes forth, and it makes it clear as day that the criminal, he, he did it, and he's deserving of punishment, and the jury makes the right decision, and they lock him away. Right? We feel a sense of justice there. There are, there are times where, in our lives where we, we sense justice as, as it should be. Well, beloved, none of that compares to the kind of justice that will be felt by our very own Lord. None of that compares to the justice that Christ himself will feel when he returns, when he comes again in judgment against the wicked. Against the wicked who have for so long persecuted afflicted his sheep, who have hurt his church, who have hurt his very own bride, his very own wife, as it were. And he has watched and he has waited in patience, knowing that a day is drawing near when he will get to make it all right. Nothing will compare to the sense of justice that he will feel. Because Christ has watched and waited patiently for thousands of years. He himself experienced it when he was on earth, and he sat and he took it patiently. When we read of that man, Jesus of Nazareth, being beaten, spit upon, mocked, even put to death, that was not just some Middle Eastern carpenter 2,000 years ago. That was the Lord of glory being beaten, being spit upon by men he created. And he did not act out then. He patiently, he took it on the chin, and he went and he finished the work that was set out for him to redeem his people, and he waited patiently. He ascended, hid his glory, continues to hide his glory now, knowing that a day will come when he will bring justice, as our text tells us, when he will bring vengeance. He knows that day is coming. There is a day of judgment coming. But it is a comfort to us as believers because the one who is the judge of all, the one who will judge every man and woman, is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. As we describe him here and as we see him brought out here as mighty, as strong, as fierce, as terrible, this same Lord is our Lord. This same Lord is our Savior. This same Lord is our Bridegroom. And will a man not have mercy on his own wife? Will a man not have mercy on his own bride? So as, as we think of and we, we read upon these heavy things of the judgment, of vengeance, we know that the one who brings that is our Lord and is betrothed to us, is covenanted to us, has promised us life everlasting. 
And so we know that as judgment comes, we know that as all the world will enter into the courtroom, the one who sits upon up there making the judgments is our own Lord, our own husband. Will he not be merciful to us? Lord, we can have hope in that. But also we must pray. We must pray for our loved ones, for those, our friends, neighbors, co-workers, family members who do not know Christ. We must pray. We must show them Christ. We must have a zeal for evangelism because when this day comes, when the second coming of Christ arrives, there will not be any more days to evangelize. There will not be any more days for prayer. This is meant to be a serious thought. As Isaiah 55, 6 says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. And with that briefly, we'll, we'll wrap up here speaking of, of Christ glorified. With all of that said, all we spoke of, if you read the text, and then as we think on it, and you see the flow of the text, it actually almost sets Christ coming in vengeance and judgment as secondary to him coming to be glorified in his people. That him coming to be glorified in his people is actually the primary reason he comes. Verse 8 says he will come to inflict vengeance. Verse 9 says they, the unbelievers, will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction. But it says all of that will only happen when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints. All of that happens when he's coming for what? To be glorified in his saints. This, the way it's, it reads, it's almost as th this is his chief purpose, is to come to be amongst his people, to come and be glorified in his saints. Now note this, the word here does not say that Christ will be glorified by his saints, by their adoring and praising of him, but in them. That Christ will be glorified in his saints. And undoubtedly Christ will, will receive glory as he comes and he receives the praises and the adoration of his people. But here it, it says something of being glorified in them. And that Christ has a glory where he as the head will be glorified in his own body, in his people together, in his body. Christ will be glorified amongst his members. And those members, as the body is glorified from the very head. Think as the sun has a glory in the moon, as the moon reflects the glory of the sun, so the body, the members of Christ, the bride of Christ, has a glory that reflects the glory of its head. The body has a glory that is the glory of Christ itself radiating forth. So Christ comes to be glorified in his people as he gathers them together, as they radiate the glory of their Lord. And it will be such a glory that it says that we will marvel at it. Christ comes and we will see his own glory as he descends from heaven. And we will see his glory even more fully brought out as he brings his people together and is glorified in them. Think of uh, Colossians chapter 3, verse 4. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. When Christ appears, we as his people will appear with him in glory. And it is his glory radiating through us. This is where Christ will have the sweetest glory with his people, amongst those who believe. 
Indeed, he will receive glory from his righteous judgment, as the wicked receive what they deserve. But here it is believers who receive what they do not deserve. This is the work of God where sinners, enemies of God, sinners are made saints and are made to love, to obey, and to follow Christ. This is a great wonder. This is a miracle that God would do such a work. 1 Peter 1 speaks of this. 1 Peter 1.12 tells us that angels desire to look into the preaching of the good news because this brings about the salvation of sinners. Angels desire to look into this because they can't fathom. They can't believe how it is that God would take sinners, rebels, and make them saints. And now imagine when all of these saints are gathered together and they shine forth the glory of their Lord who saved them. This is the glory that Christ will have when he returns. This is our aim. This is our glory to glorify our Lord. Now verse 10 tells us that he comes to be glorified and marveled at by those who believe. Those who believe. You see, beloved, the mark of those who are Christ is those who believe. You may be asking yourself, when Christ returns, how do I know if I will be one that he judges or if I will be one that he glories in, that he has glory in? And the answer is before us. That is, do you believe? Well, believe in what? Not just that Christ exists. Right? What does James 2 tell us? That even the demons believe in God, and yet they go further than many, and that they shudder and they fear. So it's not just believing in the existence of God or the existence of Christ, but it is believing in Jesus as the Christ, the anointed one, the one who came to earth to save sinners. It is a trust in him as our all in all. These are the ones who believe. These are the ones who will be gathered together and Christ will be glorified in. So I ask you, do you believe? That is the question before you. As Christ returns, do you believe? He is coming. He is coming. Beloved, I would plead with you this. Be ready for the Lord's return. It is not a matter of if. It is not a matter of maybe. It is a matter of when. As we read in Matthew, we don't know when. None of us know when. So we must be ready. And being ready is not a matter of how much we can do, how much sin we have or don't have, or how far we've progressed in our sanctification. Being ready is a matter of trusting and resting in Christ. Serve Him and love Him all of your days. But when He returns... When he returns, you might be one that he is gloried in. That you might be one that he gathers together and has glory in. Hope in this. No matter what comes your way, no matter what persecutions you may face, no matter what trials you may face, no matter what suffering or pain, Christ is coming. And he will make all things right. And he will make all things new. That is the great day before us. The return of Christ is nearer now than it ever has been before. It is nearer now. And so knowing what this day is, knowing what this day will bring, we say, Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus. May this be our prayer. Let us pray. Father, we come to you in the name of Christ. O oh Lord, we behold you in awe and in wonder. Lord, we see in your word hard things, to digest serious things, even 
sober things, of your return and of your vengeance upon the wicked. And so, Lord, we come before you humbly. We come before you with gratitude, knowing that if it were not for your work in us, if it were not for you calling us from darkness into light, that we would be amongst those who would be receiving your vengeance and that we would deserve so. But yet, Lord, out of your mercy you have put forth Christ. Out of your mercy you have given us new hearts. Out of your mercy you have drawn us unto yourself. And out of your mercy you keep us and will preserve us till that great last day. Oh, Lord, we thank you. We love you. And we seek to serve you. We seek to be ones that you were glorified in. We seek to bring you the glory that you deserve, for you deserve far more than we could ever give, far more than we could ever bring. Oh, Lord, but with all that we have, we seek your glory. It is in Christ's name we pray. Amen.